Joshua chapter 11. We've seen now the invasion of Israel where the uh, promised land was, was divided in two and we saw that uh, the coalition of the kings of the south came against Israel and how that God destroyed them. But then we look to the north, and now he turns to the north, and we see that it's going to note, it says, well, let's just go ahead and read part of it, and we'll try to identify some of these places. In verse 1, and it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, now Hazor was uh, one of the key cities up uh, in the uh, south of the Galilean, uh, Galilee area, but it was the major city that, uh, that uh, was kind of like the Brussels, what is it, the Hague, which is the, um, is the place of the United Nations. That was the place where everything was coordinated as far as uh, these uh, cities were concerned. And Hazor, uh, they heard of these things that he sent to Jobab, the king of Maiden, and Shema, the king of Shimon, and uh, the king of Ashtar. We don't know exactly where all these places are, but many of them we can identify. And the kings that were from the north, uh, in the mountains, in the plain south of Chinnereth, south of Chinnereth. Chinnereth also is also, we derive that word Gennesaret from that, as far as uh, the languages are concerned. And of course, the, la- the, the lake of Gennesaret was what? The Sea of Galilee. So this is up in the Galilee, the southern, notice the southern part of that area where it starts becoming mountainous. And so we see Chinnereth in the lowland uh, in the heights of Dor to the west um, and to the Canaanites to the east. So that would be um, toward the, the Jordan Valley and also on over into what would be um, uh, Syria or Jordan uh, as we look at it today. Uh, to the east and the west to the Amorite and to the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the mountains. Notice again the mountains. So this was a mountain campaign and yet uh, we see that it was, there was mountains and plains that we're going to try to identify. And the Jebusite in the mountains and the Hevite below Hermon. And we know Mount Hermon was one of the tallest cities there in the Galilean area in the land of Mitzpah. So that tells you the area there. So they went out and all their armies with them, as many as the sand that is, in the sea, um, that is on the seashore in multitude. Now, Josephus and others tell us that uh, from what their records or whatever, that, that they could have mustered about 300,000 men. Now, we know that Israel only had 100,000, somewhere around 90 to 100,000. And so it would be three against one. Then also... We see that uh, not only did they have 300 men in the infantry, but also there were many horses, and that would be the cavalry. And uh, Israel didn't even have a cavalry. And again, uh, with these horses and so forth, there would be somewhere around 10,000 from, again, just the records and things that were were brought up and the estimates of uh, the historians such as Josephus and others that lived back during about the time of Christ. Um, and also, we see chariots. Now, chariots were the, were the tanks of their day. They were, uh, it says um, here that um, there were many horses and chariots. And again, they're saying somewhere around uh, uh, 20,000 chariots. 
And so uh, that's a lot of chairs. That's a lot of tanks. Now, what they would do is armor those things so that you couldn't penetrate them. Then also they would have little blades on the south so you couldn't, you, you couldn't uh, just let them come by and whack off their heads or whatever because they had those blades on there. And if you did, they'd cut you in two so you couldn't get to them. Uh, they had a man with a sword, uh, with a, the, the driver, but then with the bigger chariots would have also a spearman, a guy with a spear, and also another one with, um, with the bow and arrow. And so they would have those things, and they could throw more than one spear. They could have a lot more than one arrow, and they could uh, pretty well circle you. So if you have horsemen, if you have the, the cavalry, that is, uh, that, and then you have, and then you, and all you have is footmen, uh, that's uh, one of the scarier times for infantry. Uh, I heard uh, a um, veteran of World War II, and he said, oh, we hated the sound of the clinking of those German tanks coming toward us. And so we see that uh, uh, they would, you can imagine what, how fearful that it was to see these men of war not only were you outnumbered three to, three to one with the infantry, but um, we also see that they had cavalry as well as armor. Now, to give you a scope of this battle, we must realize that uh, whenever at Gettysburg, there were around 90,000 men on the Union side and somewhere around 80,000 men on the, on the Confederate side. That's only 170,000 men that fought the great battle of Gettysburg, and it lasted three days. And so we, that's the biggest battle that's ever been fought on this land. And so this was a huge battle. And it took place in a very significant place that we'll look at in a moment. But we see then that, uh, that who wouldn't be afraid? I mean, when you're outnumbered that way and you've got all this armor coming towards you. And we see that um, they, on the Mount that, that so they went out and all their armies with them as many people as the sand of the seashore, boy, it sure seemed like that. When you muster that many people together, you can see they'd be camped for miles in the multitude with many horses and chariots. And when all these kings met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Miram. We call this the Battle of Miram um, to fight against the Israelites. Now, Miram was at the foothills or at the very base of, the, of where all these kings could come out of the mountains and up on the plains and so forth. And they could all meet together in one big group. Until I was listening to a man who was military for the military background. And he said that the children or that the, that the um, uh, military uh, leaders of Israel look to Joshua for a lot of their strategy today. We hear of preemptive strikes. Well, the three things that uh, they gathered from Joshua and the way he fought and the way they try to fight is speed and stealth and knowledge of the terrain. If they know, I mean, they try to beat you to the punch, speed. They also used deceptive means, or, well, you even look what uh, Joshua did at uh, the Battle of Ai. There was great deception there, and he was able to uh, defeat the enemy out in the open. And then you look at the speed where he had a forced march to go to Gibeon, and then, of course, attack preemptively before the army was even able to come together. He was a surprise attack. 
And here again, we see that these people are met at a very, as a junction. And it was a very important place where all these people can come out of the mountains, they could come out of the plains on the east and west, and they could all meet together in this great battlefield uh, that uh, later on we know as the Valley of Megiddo, which is, of course, Armageddon. And so there were many battles that were fought in this area. We see that uh, there were great victories there. Uh, David and Goliath and others uh, were at the southern end of that. But then uh, you think of... um, of the disasters there. And you had, uh, you think of, uh, well, another victory was uh, in the uh, Deborah and Barak. But then you think of um, some of the disasters like Jonathan, uh, Saul and Jonathan were killed in this area. Napoleon looked at this battlefield and he called it the perfect battlefield. You have the mountains of where people come out of, it'll recede, hide in. You had the rivers and the streams. You had all the different things that if you knew the topology. And of course, this is going to be the great battle that's going to be at the end, south of, uh, of Galilee, and yet uh, north of Jerusalem in this great, uh, this great area. So we see now what, what he did. Notice they met here at Miram. And this was a crossroads area. It was a key one. There's many times in battle, you see the the battles where uh, there's a central location that if it's taken, it controls so much more of the whole country. And that was true with the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, uh, where you had Bastogne. Remember where the Germans had surrounded? Because there were five or six major highways that came together in that one little town. And, uh, and you had the what, 101st uh, Airborne that uh, they didn't have any tanks or anything and they withstood for days uh, the Germans and they held them off long enough that, uh, they, that uh, the Allies could recover. But if they had taken Bastogne and just been over to overrun it, they could have gone all the way to the coast of Antwerp and captured those uh, so much. I mean, they could have altered the whole history of World War II if they would have taken that. And so many times you will hear of the major battles or a major look. Why, did, why was it so important? And Gettysburg, same thing. If, if Lee had won that in a decisive victory, Washington, D.C. would have been wide open. And so we see that uh, these were very important times. And so uh, this battle is named, and they call it in uh, history, the Battle of Miram. Um, but Joshua, but the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver them. Now notice that's the one thing that the Israelites, they study Joshua, but for some reason they leave out God. And so in the Arab-Israeli uh, War of 1967, preemptively they just wiped out the north, the south. They, took, they doubled their land size and everything else. But then in the 73 war, uh, the Yom Kippur War, uh, they were attacked first, and they almost lost everything. But, of course, God delivered them. But um, we see that, um, and he says, I will deliver them, uh, 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 the slain of, uh, all of them slain before Israel. Uh, you shall hamstring their horses. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Some, uh, some people believe that they were just killed. Other people believe that there's a tendon in a horse's leg that if you cut it, then it uh, renders him that they can't run. They can still be useful in some areas, but their, their power is, uh, is diminished. Uh, and burn the chariots with fire. Now, wait a minute. That's captured booty. 
Many times they would take those German tanks and they would uh, refurbish them and paint an American star or British whatever on there and they would use them against their enemy. Why not? But you're to burn the, the chariots with fire so that Joshua and all the people uh, who came against them, they can notice they came suddenly. And so here, the preemptively. Now, again, in studying and looking at what, what notice he says suddenly at the waters of Miram. So he, it's one thing to have a, a force of chariots and horses against you. But when you surprise attack and they're not arrayed, they're not uh, ready to go. They become more of a burden than they are a blessing. And so they attacked them before they could even mount up, before they could form their battle lines, one against the other. Preemptively, they went after them and completely caused more confusion with those horses than anything those horses could have done with them in battle. And so notice they, they didn't wait for the devil to come to them. They went to, you know, they, they took, it, they took, uh, took, uh, took them by surprise. But of course... They did it under the auspices of the Lord. And they attacked them. Notice they attacked. They didn't wait to be attacked. But that, here again, this was speed and stealth. And also they knew the terrain. They knew where they were. They knew how to cut them off. They, uh, Joshua, remember, he spent, uh, those spies that they continually sent out were not sent out for nothing. They wanted to know exactly the topography of the land and everything. Now, why is it important that um, they wanted to take care of the horses. Later on, the Lord tells, or back in Deuteronomy, we saw how that uh, specifically the Lord told the kings that whenever you have a king, they are not to take many horses or they're not to, to gather themselves horses and rely on horses. Later on, uh, one of the prophets says, you know, some people trust in horses, some people trust in uh, chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our God. But if you go down to Lachish, which is a, one of those major cities before you get to Jerusalem, uh, there is a tell there. Uh, a tell is where they would just build civilizations on top of civilizations. It was a very, it was a very difficult place to take. And if you could take it, then you can go into Jerusalem. And so many times you will read in, his, in the, the history of the kings that uh, the uh, Sennacherib could take uh, Lachish, but he couldn't take Jerusalem. But he was so weakened by the time he took Lachish that he had a hard time with uh, Jerusalem. So it was one of those outpost uh, buffer towns that uh, could stand on its own through most armies. But uh, in that, they have gone through that and they've dug down and they have found the many stables that Solomon had for his horses. And if you remember Solomon, he gathered horses and he, had, he was a great horse trader. He traded the Egyptian horses with the Arabian horses. And he had a fantastic uh, income coming in just from the horses. But turn with me, if you will, back to 2 Kings. And here we see one, this battle is called... Uh, uh, Josiah is going to go out and it's called the sunset of the kingdom because here we have Josiah and it's one of the last great battles of a righteous king and in chapter 23 of 2 Kings 
We see that, of course, if you know the story there, you know that Josiah went through and just wiped out all the idolatry. He burned down altars. He did all kinds of things to destroy idolatry in Israel. But we notice now in 2 Kings, let's see if I make, uh, in chapter uh, 23, in verse 11, and it says, Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Molech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. One of the things that they, they didn't worship only cows and bulls, they worshiped and they, and horses were uh, part of the worship service. And notice they were introduced by Solomon. Now that someone else might have had them, but uh, they, became, they became very important during that. And they became a snare to Israel. And one of the things that Josiah did as he is, of course, one of the last, well, he was the last righteous king of Israel, was to burn those stables and to burn those altars to that. Uh, Josiah is very, he's another one of those pivotal people in Scripture. He did everything he could, but the hearts of the people were still in the idolatry. But during that time, during that revival, uh, if you look at the timeline, I just discovered something this week was that uh, there was a little boy there, several little boys there, the royalty of uh, Josiah. He, of course, they, 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 we know that uh, um, Dana, uh, da, um, Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, they were all friends that were taking off, and, and, but they were young men at the time of Josiah. But during the first deportations to Babylon, they were taken to, to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know who um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azrael were? They were renamed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And what, what were their names in Babylonian? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And they were all royalty. So it's all during that time, both good and bad were happening. God was preparing Israel to, for its uh, sustenance and Babylon by even these men being saved and yet he was bringing down the, uh, the children of Israel because of the idolatry. So all those things are going on at the time. But the main thing as we look at this passage is why did God not want any horses? Why did God not want any chariots? Why did he say, you depend on me? And, and over, uh, you'll see over, uh, over a half dozen times in this chapter, God delivered, God delivered, God delivered them. And so uh, no, God said that I don't want you to trust in horses. I want you to trust in me. And even today, we look at all the pizzazz. We don't have the money to do this, and we don't have the money to do that. But it's not by might nor by power, but it's by his spirit that God still does things. We talked about that even in prayer tonight. Uh, God's been good to us financially, but I want to see him really do something spiritually, don't you? And so by your spirit, we can't save souls. God can't. But we can take the gospel and we can ask God to do his work through us. And this is the way Joshua, Joshua could not win. You know, he didn't know whether he was going to win the battle or not, except that God told him he would. And God even gave him the plans. And again, we see, well, if the children of Israel today would just go back and include God in this. Nobody telling what they could do. Of course, the nation would be great to see them turn to God. But uh, some of the greatest atheists in the world today are still Jews. And uh, we see that uh, 
speed, surprise, stealth, and they knew the terrain. He knew that uh, if he got him here, he would have the whole country. And this is what happened. And so we see that, uh, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel. There it is again, back in chapter 11 of Joshua, uh, verse uh, 8. And the Lord delivered them in the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon. That's on up. That's way up north to close to to Syria and uh, Tyre, as it was later on called. Um, the brook of Mespah, whatever, and the king of Mespah eastward. So they just wiped out the whole area, took both the east and west side of, uh, and the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They just, I mean, once they won that battle, then everything else was open. And so by the very fact that these people came together against Israel made it a whole lot easier than taking these cities and these areas one by one. And so we see the eastward. And they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. Now, isn't it interesting? And we see in the uh, book of Revelation, no matter what God did, people still wanted to gather against God and want to try to defeat him. And of course, we know that great battle is going to be in this very area and the battle of Megiddo. All those kings of the north are going to be hiding in the mountains and coming down, swooping toward Jerusalem and God is going to deliver them into the hand. I wonder how he's going to do it Well, uh, preemptively. Well, he's going to do it preemptively because he's going to appear from the sky, so that's going to be a real interesting thing. But we see that they attacked them until that none left. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung the horses and burned the chariots with fire. And then Joshua turned back. So he was up north by the, he just swept through, swept through the whole area. But now he turned back to, and took Hazor, that king city, that one city that coordinated everything, the Brussels of the area, and struck its king with the sword. And for Hazor, which was the formerly head of all these kingdoms, and they struck all their people who were in it with the edge of the sword, and they utterly, dis- and, uh, with the edge of the sword, and utterly destroying them, uh, there was none left breathing, and they burned Hazor with fire. So again, this is one of the major cities, so we see that that city was utterly destroyed. Now again, you say, well, how mean this is. <laughs> I was listening to a, a fellow talking about, he went to a movie, and he was just talking about the insensitivity that we have today. Of, uh, I mean, he said he was sitting in this movie, and I, he named the movie, but since I don't know it, it might be a bad movie, so I don't want to recommend it. But uh, um, he was watching this movie, and they were just having all kinds of people. You know, women were killing the guys, and the guys were killing, swords were cutting off heads, and boy, there was all kind of blood all over the place. But then a little dog appeared, and he got killed, and that's when the audience goes, ah! You know, I mean, everybody else is being slaughtered and everything else, but then that little dog comes out there and he gets killed and everybody goes, ah! You know, we are really insensitive today, are we not? And so, I mean, we're so used to seeing the blood and guts and gore and everything else, but then you see a little dog. Well, look what happens in our streets. I mean, you can get more trouble of killing a dog than you can a person today. We are really in a messed up area of our lives. And so here we see that uh, this is... You know, everybody, what about the horses? You know, <laughs> and people, whenever they read this, especially younger, you know, he killed all those horses. What about all the people? You know, so, but again, uh, isn't that what God's going to do at the Battle of Armageddon? 
He's going to take care of those who defied him. These people had a chance to do what the Gibeonites did. But they marshal their forces against God just like they will in the latter days. And God will take care of them. And he says the blood is going to be so deep that it's going to be up to the horse's bridles. I mean, that's going to be a pretty bad war, isn't it? It's going to take nine months to bury the dead. That's a big battle. That's going to be in the last days. And so, but when God is through with people, then this is what they get. And remember, these were the, and this city was the king of the, uh, was part of the, uh, the, the Amorite Empire, and, um, and it was full. And God now allowed them to be destroyed. And we'll see, and just, well, let's just turn over, look at verse 20. So it was the Lord hardened their hearts that they should come against Israel to battle. It gets to a point that God will use the hardened heart of a sinner to destroy him. One of the judgments is when a person gets so, when they've turned against God so much that he will actually harden their heart like he did uh, Pharaoh and other people that we see in the Bible. He hardened their hearts to accomplish his purposes. So that's why I say many times, oh, you don't wait till your deathbed. When God's through with you, he's through with you. And God will try, and he will actually harden your heart to do his will so that he can whip you. I mean, that is scary, isn't it? Oh, that the Lord wouldn't do that uh, in my life. I mean, okay, you want to go that route, then you go ahead. And Now, as a Christian, uh, we know that he'll punish us, he'll chasten us. But uh, how many times as a parent, you might have to let a child uh, touch, uh, well, I don't, I have to be careful of that because there's all kinds of, you know, you know the kid, let them skin their knee or whatever. Uh, a child who touches a burner uh, has a fear of stoves after a while, don't they? There again, I'm not saying you let them do it, but uh, oh, yeah, I think you understand. You have to be so careful in saying those things today because it makes it, because of, uh, I am definitely against anything that would hurt a child. So, but uh, sometimes they have to learn uh, just by, uh, the, the hard way, what their parents are trying to tell them. And so the Lord uh, said, okay, you're against me. Now you saw, you knew just like Rahab, you knew all about the king, what I did with the strongest army in the world. You knew what I did at Jericho, the strongest city that was down south of you. And uh, what I've done to the south, those, all those kings, you knew that, I, I mean, I, you know, my people are undefeated. And yet you come against me. But notice why they did. Because they kept on wanting to beat the Lord. What about an, an unsaved person? What about you, a backslider? Where we just keep on fighting God. I think of one person just popped in my mind. I'm not about to tell you. But uh, a person who's bitter toward God. And the more bitter they get toward God, the miserable, more miserable they get. And the more that their life just seems to be going downhill. I pray for that person. But why is it that people think they can fight God? And we see that uh, the, sooner or later, when you fight God enough, he says, okay, I'm done with you. I will harden your heart and I will get you to do, as I got Joshua to do my will, I'll get you to do my will, but it'll be just the opposite from the opposite direction. And so we see that God did this. So but let's go back to verse 12 now. We see, and so all the cities of 
the, those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword and he utterly destroyed them as Moses, thy, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Notice he was following orders. But for the cities uh, that stood in, on their mounds, the tells, they could, you'll hear a Tel Aviv or Tel Amarna. There's different places where they, they would build cities on top of cities. And we know, we know Jerusalem and uh, Lachish. There's seven or eight uh, layers of civilizations on those tells, as they call them, T-E-L, that they call them, and the mounds of civilizations. But notice in verse 13, but as for the cities that stood on their mounds, um, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned, and all the spoil of those cities and their livestock, the children of Israel took uh, booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them, and they left none breathing. And the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So notice Joshua was a great leader because he knew how to follow orders. He, his objective was to do what Moses told him to do, his strategy was to figure out how, what God wanted. And so his strategy was different than, Mo, than, uh, than even Moses. Moses had to lead two and, a half, two and a half million people around, but he loved an, led an army around. And his strategy, as we said, was speed and stealth and uh, knowledge of the terrain. So he was equipped to do what God told him to do, but then again he still trusted in God to do what he needed to do. In verse 16, thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country of the south and of, jo of Goshen, um, the lowland of Jordan, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, and Mount Halak and the, uh, the ascent to Seir, um, which is on the east side. Now this would have been uh, before. This had been the, where Gad and Reuben, Gad and Naphtali, Naphtali were, um, or excuse me, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Um, they captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time. How long was a long time? Well, oh my, I don't want to go, I don't want to refer you. Uh, but if you look, if you just uh, Google Caleb. And Caleb tells us, or the, the life of Caleb tells us that he was 78 when they crossed the Jordan. And it'll tell you that in uh, Deuteronomy as well as, or Joshua, and then later on um, as you get into the synopsis of the last part of Joshua. But he was 85 when he was ready to take that mountain, so seven years. Uh, how long is the tribulation? Seven years. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So there were seven years, and so we get to how long this campaign went on, uh, not through Joshua, but Caleb who of course was one of, the, one of only two men that came out of Egypt uh, over 20 years old who was still alive. And so we see there, um, thus Joshua took all of the land of the mountains and so forth uh, and struck them down a long time. And there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hevites of, the, of, of uh, Gibeon. All the others took to battle. They would rather fight for it was that the Lord had hardened their hearts. And so sometimes, some of our enemies, God is bringing against us just to show his power. 
Now, I don't want to figure that one out. <laughs> I mean, uh, Lord, is this because you've hardened their heart and now you are wanting to show your victory? I have listened to lawyers who have, um, that have formed organizations to protect uh, uh, Christian organizations. And I think of uh, one lawyer that I haven't heard from in a long time, so I don't know exactly where he stands on certain issues. But uh, he said he was defending a church that was going through some major troubles with an ungodly city council. And they were trying to shut down the church and uh, all that. And uh, he went in there and he said, you know, really, they, uh, you, you guys are pretty small and you don't have a whole lot of money and we don't have a big organization that can support you. So we're going to pray for a miracle and, they, you know, we're going to pray that God will take care of And he said they literally went in there and the city manager and the lawyer, the prosecuting attorney, started fighting in court. <laughs> and the judge threw out the case. He said, if you guys can't get together, why in the world are you bringing this person in? Uh, can God do that? And so can God destroy the, can God take care of the people that fight against us? And so we see that, again, that this is what the Lord did. And now, at that time, notice in verse uh, 21, and this is uh, a portent of things to come. And that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron and Deber and Nadab, from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel, uh, Joshua utterly destroyed them with, his, with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. By the way, that's the first time it's called the land of the children of Israel in the Bible. The land of the children of Israel now is that it's been crowned here or named. Now, who were the Anakim? Notice they... Uh, that uh, there were only some that remained in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod, which were on down south uh, toward Egypt, what is now the uh, Gaza Strip. Um, and there were five major cities. And uh, the, one of the major cities of the Philistines was the city of Gath. Who came from Gath that David fought against? He was a big, tall guy. What was his name? Goliath. So notice the, the children of Israel, when they saw those people back whenever they were ready to, you know, they sent the 12 spies in. They said, oh, there's some big guys out there. We could form a basketball team with them. But, uh, man, like they, you know, they were scared to death of them. And then we saw those big city walls of Jericho and Gazer and, and Hazor and all these places. And uh, we can't take all this. And now we see that uh, the big city walls have come down. And we see that all the giants of the land, notice he went through and methodically took care of the giants of the land. And there were only a few left, but they were out of the boundaries of where God had, where Israel had, uh, uh, was designated. And so the Philistines were on down south, closer to Egypt. And so we see that uh, he took care of them all the way down to there. And um, none of the Anakim were left in verse 22. So uh, that's the reason we don't see Goliath and his family and his five brothers and all those were destroyed. Uh, but he left in the land of Israel and they remained only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod, those three of the five cities of the Philistines. So, jo so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. 
And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to the children according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. And so we see that uh, the invasion was clear. Now there was still going to be a mop-up situation where the children of Israel still had those little enclaves. The, ba- the major battles were won. Now as the children of Israel, as they were going to be divided up into their tribes, they had a responsibility to drive the rest of the Canaanites out. And as a result of not doing their personal bidding, we know that the Canaanites bothered them for the rest of their history. Now, I I kind of equate that, uh, we could have great revivals, can't we? You can see God worked through a lot of people's lives and hundreds of people get saved like happened back uh, in the the glory days of of, uh, revivals back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But even with that, is there not a personal responsibility that each person takes on? And as a result of that, if we don't take care of the Canaanites in our personal lives, then can they not come not to destroy us? I think of a great, uh, one of the greatest uh, and most famous anyway, of the, uh, of the evangelists, and that was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday did a great, and really he, some of those offerings that he would have, in fact, Nell Sunday was his finance manager, and they would have so much, it would be in a big sack, they would take it. And they financed a lot of things. In fact, my alma mater was financed a lot in its early days by some of the money from, uh, from those evangelistic meetings of Billy Sunday. There was a dorm, a girl's dorm named after Nell Sunday there. Uh, and that Billy Sunday and Bob Jones were good friends. But in spite of the fact that Billy Sunday swept many people into heaven, and there's pictures of him shaking hands, and he said, this is 100,000 or you know, the whatever number of people that uh, I know has at least made a profession in Christ through my ministry. And yet he lost his own sons. Uh, one of the last times when he was preaching, his son was dying from alcoholism. And so we can drive, we can really be great at battle, can't we? But we have to take care of the personal battles, do we not? We've got to make sure that, yes, we see God greatly moving, but individually, each one of us have a battle that we need to drive out those personal Canaanites in our lives, or they will come and destroy us. And so we see here that. Joshua did everything he was supposed to do, everything, but yet it was still up to the people to do their part. And it's up to you and me. We can have great revivals here. We can see God's sweet, but individually, each one of us has to go home and take care of the Canaanites. Do we not? We have to make sure that God takes care of the personal problems, those personal evils in our lives. If we don't, they will come back to haunt us. In order that God would help us, to be soldiers of Christ, both as an army and as an individual, that we make sure that we take care of the things that God calls us to do, that not only would we follow what our leader tells us to do, but, but to, or whatever the great man is, or woman, whatever, but that we do what God tells us to do personally. And that is to mop up, to make sure that we, our lives, are right with God. Let's pray. Father, 
We come to you today thanking you for the great victories that we've seen. We've seen, Lord, you greatly work in the hearts and lives of multitudes. We've seen and we've heard about the great revivals. We've been sometimes part of great church revivals of how that you have done great work in other people's lives and even in our lives. But Lord, help us to realize there's a personal price to pay. There's a personal job to do. And that is that we must take care of those personal things in our lives that you can use us and that we won't let those evils, those things that uh, would destroy us remain in our lives. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.